Another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And we are continuing our series, A Year of Polygamy, highlighting this time, Eliza R. Snow. Now, I just want to say that we have talked about Eliza R. Snow in the past. And this is only dealing with her stories of polygamy. I think that she has such a wealth of information. She was a prolific writer and just a huge person in church history so she deserves her own podcast but you're in luck we've already done a podcast on her with with karen lynn davidson her biographer uh for her book eliza the life and faith of eliza or snow so i'll go ahead and link to that and make sure you check that out because uh there's a lot more to eliza snow than polygamy and i really don't like these women reduced just to their relationship with other men and luckily for eliza she has so much Um, written about her. There's just such a wealth of information. But today, since we are processing polygamy and the issue of polygamy for Mormon women to help dissect and help them work through this difficult issue, we're going to talk about Eliza's relationship with polygamy. There's a lot to say about her. She was early Relief Society president, president of the Desert Hospital, president of the Women's Department of the Endowment House. She was an author. She was a poet. She was married to two prophets, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. She wrote a lot of our hymns. She is probably one of the most famous women in Mormon history. Uh, She's just really remembered well. And uh, she has a story of talent, accomplishments, scandal, and triumph. Todd Compton would call her the childless mother of mothers in Israel. And Brigham Young called her priestess, prophetess, and presidentess. A lot of discussion will follow on Eliza Snow's sexual activities and her womb, which is unfortunate, but for someone like Eliza Snow in such a position of high power, involved with high, powerful men, her sexuality was in question quite a bit. She was born in Beckett, Berkshire, Massachusetts on January 21st, 1804, and her parents were of English descent. I'm going to let her tell her story with a special thanks to our amazing reader, Katie Langston, who is reading the voice of Eliza R. Snow today. I was born in Beckett, Berkshire County, Massachusetts, January 21st, 1804. My parents were of English descent. Their ancestors were among the earliest settlers of New England. My father, Oliver Snow, was a native of Massachusetts. My mother, Rosetta L. Pettibone of Connecticut. Eliza was the second of seven children of Oliver and Rosetta Pettibone Snow. The family moved to the Western Reserve in 1806. She was said to be lively and talented from a young age, and if you read any of her writing, she is whip-smart and very witty. She sometimes wrote her school lessons in rhyme, and she later gained experience working as a secretary in the office of her father, who was a justice of the peace. So she was trained by her mom in the domestic arts at home. So she earned some income as a seamstress and as a school teacher, but she also had the secretarial work. Between 1826 and 1832, she published more than 20 poems over various pen names in Ohio's Western Courier and the Ohio Star. So she 
was already already publishing. She was very motivated and incredibly talented. According to one biographer, she was quote slightly above medium height and of slender build, but bearing was at one graceful and dignified. Hers was a noble countenance, the forehead being unusually high and expansive, and the features of a slightly Hebrew cast, exquisitely cut as those as an artistic specimen of the sculptor's art. The most striking feature of all was those wonderful eyes, deep, penetrating, full of meaning and intelligence, often illuminated with poetic fire. They were indeed the windows of a noble soul. Her conversation was charming, every word being distinctly articulated. In speech and in action, she was thoughtful and deliberate, while of susceptible and delicate organism. And in every way womanly, she had great decision of character. So deep were her convictions and potent her sense of morality that we believe she would more readily have surrendered her life than act in opposition to them. End quote. At age 22, she wrote The Fall of Mizalongai recounting the battle between Greece and Turkey. Its publication led her to some fame, and she was asked to write a requiem upon the deaths of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, former presidents of the U.S., who both died on July 4th, 1826. In the sketch of her life, she would say of her patriotism, quote, I was born a patriot. At least a warm feeling of patriotism inspired my childish heart and mingled in my earliest thoughts as evinced in many of the earliest productions of my pen. My grandfather on my mother's side, when fighting for the freedom of our country, was taken prisoner by the British troops and confined in a dreary cell and so scantily fed that when his fellow prisoner by his side died from exhaustion, he reported him to the jailer as sick in bed in order to obtain the amount of food for both. This, with many similar narratives of revolutionary sufferings recounted by my grandparents, so deeply impressed my mind that as I grew up to womanhood, I fondly cherished a pride for the flag which so proudly waved over the graves of my brave and valiant ancestors. Still in her early 20s, she published poetry in local magazines and newspapers, winning awards for her work. In 1828... 24-year-old Eliza joined Alexander Campbell's Christian primitivist movement and would later join in Mormonism. She wanted to be near, nearer to others of her faith, and so she moved to Kirtland in December of 1835. Upon her arrival in Kirtland, Eliza donated a large sum of money to the In Progress Temple Project. In appreciation, the building committee ins insisted that she take a very valuable lot situated near the temple with a fruit tree of an excellent spring of water a house that accommodated two families. Eliza would be boarding at the home of Joseph Smith, so her older sister Lenora lived in one half, and she would be in the other half. In 1838, Eliza relocated to Missouri and then Illinois, and her time in Missouri is important, and we'll come to that later. In 1838, when the Latter-day Saints were ordered by Governor Boggs to leave the state of Missouri or be killed, a man taunted Eliza R. Snow, saying, quote, well, I think this will put an end to your faith. I replied, no, sir, it will take more than this to put an end to my faith. He humbly responded, I must confess you are a stronger person than I am. In 1842, Emma Smith selected her to be the secretary of the newly organized Female Relief Society. And Eliza would say about this time, quote, it was about this time I first understood that the practice of plurality was to be introduced into the church. 
the subject was very repugnant to my feelings. I consoled myself with the idea that it was far in the distance and beyond the period of my mortal existence. However, a few months later, on June 29, 1842, Eliza married Joseph Smith. She would write about this. I was sealed to the prophet Joseph Smith for time and eternity, in accordance with the celestial law of marriage which God had revealed, the ceremony being performed by a servant of the Most High, authorized to officiate in sacred ordinances. This one of the most important events of my life I have never had cause to regret. Eliza later fondly wrote of Joseph, quote, My beloved husband, the choice of my heart, and the crown of my life. Okay, so it gets tricky. There's a lot of scandal involved, in particular with Eliza and Emma, because Eliza was so well-known, first of all, and second of all, she was said to be a really good friend and confidant of Emma Smith, as were many of these women. It's really unclear if Joseph's first wife, Emma, knew exactly how, how involved Joseph and Eliza were. In any case, on August 14th, Eliza wrote, quote, Yesterday, Mrs. Smith sent for me, having previously given me the offer of a home in her house. This, I trust, is for good. Eliza soon moved in with the Smiths, schooling the Smith children and performing other duties. She recalls, quote, I was entirely governed by the wishes of President and Mrs. Smith. I desire and aim to be submissive to the requirements of those whom God has placed in authority over me. A week later, Eliza revealed in poem her, her own anxious feelings about these recent events. Quote, we are apt to conclude from the medley of things. We've got into a jumble of late. A deep, intricate puzzle, a tangle of strings that no possible scheme can make straight. From the midst of confusion, can harmony flow? Or can peace from distraction come forth? From out of corruption, integrity grow, or can vice unto virtue give birth? Will the righteous come forth with their garments unstained, with their hearts unpolluted with sin? Oh yes, Zion, thy honor will be sustained, and the glory of God ushered in. Eliza stayed in the Smith home for six months until February 11, 1843, when she wrote in her diary, quote, Took board and had my lodging removed to the residence of Brother Holmes. Okay, so this is where the scandal comes in. And I'm going to link to a great essay that Brian Hills wrote on this particular controversy, going over all the primary sources and secondhand sources we have on this story. Now, there would be, I believe, six people that would leave a history of this story to some form or another. Unfortunately, all the the accounts are not consistent with one another. But the basics are, well, I'm just going to tell you Leroy Snow, who was Lorenzo Snow's son. So this would have been Eliza's nephew. Lorenzo Snow would, was Eliza's brother. So this is Lorenzo's son. He recounts the scandalous story of Emma Smith and Eliza Snow. So now Eliza's married to Joseph, right? And she's said to be living with the Smiths. And somehow, Eliza's pregnant. Eliza, the childless woman, is pregnant. And Emma Smith discovers that Eliza is pregnant with Joseph's child. And she throws Eliza down a staircase, causing her to miscarry and lose the baby. Now, you should know that Leroy was 11 when Eliza died. 
So he did not hear this directly from her. In his notes, he recounts a version of Charles Rich, an eyewitness, who was said to watch the event. He said, quote, A door opposite opened and dainty little dark-haired Eliza R. Snow, she was heavy with child, came out. Joseph then walked on the stairway when he tenderly kissed Eliza and then came on down the stairs towards Brother Rich. Just as he reached the bottom step, there was a commotion on the stairway, and both Joseph and Brother Rich turned quickly to see Eliza tumbling down the stairs. Emma had pushed her in a fit of rage and jealousy. She stood at the top of the stairs glowering, her countenance her countenance a picture of hell. Joseph quickly picked up the little lady, and with her in his arms, he turned and looked up at Emma, who then burst into tears and ran into her room. Joseph carried the hurt and bruised Eliza up the stairs into her room. Her lip was injured, and that is why she always afterwards, afterward favored that leg, said Charles C. Rich. She lost the unborn babe, end quote. So that would be one, one account. Um, Mary Barzy Boyce uh, would give a similar account. She said, quote, Emma went upstairs and pulled Eliza R. Snow downstairs by the hair of her head, and she was staying there. Although she had consented to give him meaning Joseph, one or more woman, women in the beginning, it was rumored that while I, um, Mrs. Barzi Boyce, was in Nauvoo, that she got sick, she, that she got in such a rage about it, she left home and went down to Quincy, but came back while I was there, end quote. According to other sources, Emma turned Eliza R. Snow in the street in her night clothes while the family looked on crying. Now, I'm going to go into this, this essay just a little bit, because there's, there's some good stuff. So, there's another account from Samuel W. Taylor. He wrote this dramatic account in Nightfall of Nauvoo, and I'm going to read that too. He said, quote, Eliza got out of bed feeling queasy. It was early, the house quiet. Perhaps she'd be sick this morning again. Better go out back to the privy in case. She stepped from her room just as Joseph's door opened. He paused a moment looking at her with affection. Big, handsome, vital. Her husband for time and eternity. Then they came together. She whispered, had he decided what to do? He nodded. They could meet at Sarah Cleveland's this afternoon to talk it over. 2.30. A wild cry then. Emma was upon them with a broomstick. Joseph staggered back. Emma flailed at Eliza with the heavy stick, calling her name, screaming. Eliza, trying to shield her head with her arms, dashed for the stairs, stumbled, fell headlong, and went over head over heels down the steps as everything went black. She awakened in bed. Emma was there, and Joseph, together with Dr. Bernhizel. Eliza, Emma said, I'm sorry. I understand, Eliza said. Her voice came as weak as a whisper. Dr. Bernhizel nodded to Joseph and Emma, saying quietly that the patient needed rest. Joseph put an arm around Emma's shoulder and went out with her. Then the doctor turned to Eliza. He took her wrist to feel her pulse. It is best that you should know immediately, Sister Eliza, he said quietly. You have lost your baby. He paused then, added, and I'm afraid that you will never again become a mother, end quote. Okay, so uh, Brian Hales notes that Taylor's account is not presented as a documented history. Um, and it was just it's kind of this, you know, retelling of this event. But it was definitely known as the stairs incident. And especially in the Utah period when um, Eliza and, and Brigham really needed Emma's, uh, Emma Smith to be sort of vilified, these rumors got more and more traction. We have, so we have Leroy Snow quoting um, Charles C. Rich. We have that account. And then we have Marianne Barzee, who I wrote, 
Uh, we also have a recollection from Eliza Jane Churchill Webb. She, she said, quote, Joseph never had any living children by his polygamous women, although it is always supposed that Eliza R. Snow had a child, and she went into retirement for a year before Joseph's death. So this story says that Eliza disappeared and uh, had the child for a year. Another story was published in 1886 by William Weil, who quoted Chauncey Webb, saying, quote, Emma soon found out the little compromise arranged between Joseph and Eliza. Feeling outraged as a wife and betrayed as a friend, Emma is currently reported as having had recourse to a vulgar broomstick as an instrument of revenge, and the harsh treatment received at Emma's hand is said to have destroyed Eliza's hopes of becoming the mother of a prophet's son, end quote. Um, and then John R. Young was had written to Willard Stolworthy, Stolworthy on February 17, 1929. So this is like almost 100 years later. He says, quote, in blank, I, he said, I was living in St. George, Utah at the time Joseph and Alexander, sons of the prophet Joseph Smith, visited Salt Lake City. Saul and Foster's living at St. George when a young man lived with the prophet was his coachman and dearly loved him when he learned of Joseph and Alexander's coming. Foster went to Salt Lake City to see them, and upon return to St. George, I was at the sacrament meeting. President Erastus Snow, seeing Foster in the audience, called him to the stand and asked him to tell the people what this meeting, the prophet's sons, about his meeting to the prophet's sons. Foster said, when I met Joseph after congratulations, I said, Joseph, when you meet your father, don't you think he will give you a good spanking? Why should father spank me? Because you are doing all in your power to undo what he gave his life to establish. I suppose you're referring to polygamy. Yes. I don't know that my father gave his life to establish polygamy. Joseph, when your mother turned Eliza R. Snow outdoors in her night clothes, and you stood there crying, I took you upstairs to bed with me, and you said I wish mother would not be so cruel to Aunt Eliza. You knew that Eliza R. Snow was your father's wife. That statement above, in spirit and substance, is a true report of what Solomon Foster said to the saints assembled in the sacrament meeting. End quote. You know, so there's there's several problems with these narratives, not to mention the incons- inconsistencies. But uh, if you look at the the staircases in both the Nauvoo home and the Homestead home, it doesn't. It's unlikely that the stories occurred at least how they were told. And you know, the timeline is a little off. There, it's doubtful that Eliza disappeared for a year because we have accounts of her being around um, after this event happened. We absolutely do know that something did happen though. Usually folklore is, is rooted in some sort of truth. I would consider this folklore um, and rumor, but we do know on the date that this was said to have happened, July 20th, 1843, Eliza writes in her journal, quote, Sister Emma called to see me. Her appearance very plainly manifested the perturbation of her mind. How strangely is the human countenance changed when the powers of darkness reign over the empire of the heart. Scarcely, if ever, in my life had I come in contact with such forbidding and angry looks. Yet I felt as calm as the summer eve and received her as smilingly as the playful infant. And my heart as sweetly reposed upon the bosom of conscious innocence as infancy reposes in the arms of paternal tenderness and love. It is better to suffer than do wrong. And it is sometimes better to submit to injustice rather than contend. It is certainly better to wait 
the retribution of Jehovah than to contend where effort will be unavailable. So we do know that something happened. Emma was really angry with her. It's very possible that uh, she did turn her out in a public fashion. We do know that Emma, like I said earlier, recorded that she left the house. She seemed angry about it. She would write about it with more anger later on. I do have to tell you that Arrington uh, likes to suggest that Eliza never slept with Brigham Young, which um, could be possible. I, I have some doubts. And for her sake, I hope that Eliza was at least able to experience some things in her life. But uh, there is some talk about her being a virgin her entire life. Here is uh, Ingus Cannon quoting Heber C. Kimball. He said, he, Joseph Smith III, said, quote, I am informed that Eliza Snow was a virgin at the time of her death. I, in turn, said, Brother Heber C. Kimball, I am informed, asked her the question if she was not a virgin through... Although married to Joseph Smith and afterwards to Brigham Young, when she replied in a private gathering, I thought you knew Joseph Smith better than that. And so this, people have taken that quote to mean uh, that she has slept with, that she had slept with Joseph Smith. Later on in a letter by RLDS missionary Daniel Munns asking if she had been a spiritual wife of Joseph Smith, she replied, quote, you ask, referring to President Smith, did he authorize or practice spiritual wifery? Were you a spiritual wife? I certainly shall not acknowledge myself of being a carnal one. I am personally and intimately acquainted with several ladies now living in Utah who accepted the pure and sacred doctrine of plural marriage and were the bona fide wives of President Joseph Smith. End quote. Now, Hales acknowledges that Eliza probably wouldn't acknowledge that she was a carnal wife of anyone in any setting, um... This could have to do with her sexuality. Uh, I, I find it odd that we like to argue so much if Joseph and Brigham slept with these women. Because, again, to me, it's irrelevant. Um, in To the extent that it says more about our views of sexuality and our sexual hangups than it does theirs. Clearly, these people saw each other as wives. Clearly, they uh, lived this way. Clearly, they sacrificed in ways that made them property to these men, made them beholden to these men, made them bound to these men. And so, I mean, I'm not really interested in if she slept with them or not. My personal opinion is that she did. I don't know why she didn't. And for her sake, I hope she did because uh, I don't think it's really fair that Eliza, because she was married to two prophets, would have to live celibate her entire life. That doesn't seem fair to me. There is another um, controversial topic, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but there is some scholarship coming out. Uh, according to um, the George Albert Smith family, Eliza R. Snow was raped by Missourians, and her possible pregnancy mentioned was a result of either that or her possible infertility was also... A result of that. That's a lot of speculation. I haven't done a lot of research on that, so I don't feel comfortable talking about that. But it should be noted that um, that her womb is up for a lot of debate. As a single sister, as a mother in Israel, she was uh, her childlessness was discussed a lot. She had to address it a lot. It gave her some advantages over over the other plural wife. She was able to travel a lot more. Um, but it also gave her a lot of disadvantages, too. And again, it makes me kind of icky and uncomfortable that we have to talk so much about it. 
but the reason why I've done it is because I feel like it's relevant to this discussion. If you go on any site, you're going to read about the stair story. You're going to read about Eliza's possible pregnancy. And um, I would just encourage everyone to read as much as you can before making a concrete opinion on that. In fact, I would argue that you can't make a concrete opinion on this incident because most of it is based in rumor, as all sexual scandals are. And I don't know. It just feels it feels irrelevant to me. Uh, what we do know is that she had a falling out with Emma. She was angry about it. She was kicked out of the house. And there are plenty of reasons that they could have been angry. And it wouldn't have to do with her being pregnant. So go ahead and read the Hales uh, essay that I'm going to link. He kind of breaks down what the problems with some of those narratives. And um, I think the most heartbreaking thing for me in this story is what I talked about in the Nauvoo episode, which was Eliza was, you know, the secretary in the Relief Society, and she was Emma's trusted friend. And because of this practice and its secrecy, she was practicing as Joseph's plural wife, and Emma didn't know about it. And she was living in the home as Joseph's plural wife, and Emma didn't know about it for some time. And so I think those power struggles, I think that those power dynamics, those friendship dynamics, I think that those are the tragedy here. Um, when Joseph Smith was killed in 1844, Eliza was overcome with grief, even praying that she might also die and be reunited with her husband. She said that Joseph appeared to her in a vision and, quote, told her that his work upon earth was complete, but hers was not. She must be of good courage and help to cheer and lighten the burdens of others, end quote. In a letter to Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner, another plural wife of Joseph Smith in Minersville, Utah, Eliza wrote, quote, Change is the key word to this dispensation. The righteous like gold must be seven times purified. On October 3rd, 1844, Eliza Arsenault was sealed to Brigham Young for time or mortal life during a private ceremony. So remember, this is important too. Uh, some, of Brigham's, some of Brigham's marriages would only be mortal sealings. And this was the case with uh, Eliza Arsenault. So they weren't living in celestial polyandry. This would be... Eliza was married. She was sealed to Joseph for eternity and for time, and then he passed away. So she was only sealed to Brigham Young for his mortal life, for her mortal life. One of Eliza's amazing biographers, Jill Mulvey-Durr, spoke of Eliza and Brigham's relationship. Quote, It's really hard to tell how much time they spent together or what the nature of their relationship was simply because we have so few documents. When people live right next door to each other, they don't write letters very much, and Eliza apparently was not keeping a diary at this time. End quote. Eliza never took Brigham Young's name. However, they were fiercely loyal to each other and worked hard together and were totally committed in establishing a kingdom of God. And we see this. Those two were like the power couple. Brigham was doing something he knew he could count on Eliza. She would crack the whip. She would get things done. In a lot of ways, I, uh, for as amazing she she is, I kind of resent her because I feel like she used her powers, her power, and her access to the leadership and to authority to sometimes subjugate uh, women below her, which we sometimes see in a patriarchal structure. Women gain power by practicing patriarchal principles and using it to oppress other women. I'm not saying she did that out of spite or guile. I'm just saying that was the position she was in and a powerful woman like her, since she's not able to get full power and equality with men, used the power she got to keep other women under her. When she gave marital advice, she confessed that there were challenges in marriage. 
Who can try a wife like a husband? In 1845, she wrote the words to the popular Mormon hymn, Oh My Father, which was her most beloved poem, notable for the doctrine concerning a heavenly mother. Clarissa Young Spencer, daughter of Brigham Young, wrote of Eliza R. Snow, quote, She was slight and fragile and always immaculate in dress. I see her now in her full-skirted, lace-trimmed silk dresses with her dainty lace caps and a gold chain around her neck, looking for all the world like a piece of Dresden china. She always sat on Father Brigham Young's right at the dinner table and also in the prayer room. He valued her opinion greatly and gave her important commissions, especially in relation to the women's organization of the church. Her numerous duties in this capacity earned her the quaint title of Presidentess, end quote. So, so Presidentess meant that she was like Brigham Young's female almost equal. I mean, obviously, when it pushed came to shove, Brigham had all the power, the authority, but Eliza would often sit on his right. He would send her to uh, organize the women and to crack the whip with the women if needed. Though she was, quote, fragile, Eliza was an amazing organizer. She served as a General Relief Society president for 21 years, from 1866 to 1887. Remember, the Relief Society was different then. You didn't just get called for a few years and then someone else got called. You could serve until your death. She was also instrumental in organizing the Retrenchment Society under President Young's direction. President Young allegedly wanted the women to be, quote, less worldly and extravagant, so he organized the Retrenchment Association for the Women to keep his daughters in check. Brigham Young asked Eliza to organize a junior retrenchment, which would later become the Young Women's Organization. While speaking in Delta, Utah, Eliza requested the young men to join the young women at a meeting held there. In that meeting, she suggests that young men organize themselves, quote, lest the young women leave you behind, end quote. Thus, the young men's organization became established after that as well. Clarissa Young would also remark, quote, she was, she was very extravagant in her own mode of dress, invariably putting yards and yards of material into her skirts and trimming her gowns as elaborately as possible. But she could not bear to see a like extravagance in the younger generations. Her feelings on the subject, indeed, amounting almost to fanaticism. I haven't the least doubt, but what she was entirely sincere in the matter, evidently believing that what was quite all right for a woman of her judgment and experience would fill the heads of the young girls with vain and idle thoughts, end quote. So that's a perfect example of what I was talking about earlier and kind of why she gets under my skin sometimes. Here, Eliza spent all of this time and all this money on her own dress and her appearance, and she was able to do that. She didn't have all of these children that she was caring for. Some of Brigham Young's wives would have 10 children. She didn't have that. She had her own little room. She had her own time to to travel. She had her own carriage. She could go travel where she wanted to. And she really lived extravagantly. And then here she goes and she preaches to the young women, don't be vain, don't be extravagant. You better not be fancy. And you have to remember, Eliza lived in, I wouldn't say considerable wealth, but comparative wealth compared to the rest of the saints. Up in Salt Lake City, she lived a lot, a lot better than the majority of the saints, especially in southern Utah and central Utah, where they were living, where they were starving to death. So so it's interesting to see kind of that distinction there. Not to say that she didn't have her own struggles when she came to the valley, because she absolutely did. At a conference of some 6,000 women in Salt Lake City on January 13, 1870, held for the purpose of giving enlightenment to the na- nation regarding women's position in church, Eliza makes a brilliant speech. She says, quote, 
Our enemies pretend that in Utah, woman is held in a state of vassalage, that she does not act from choice but by coercion. What nonsense! I will now ask of this assemblage of intelligent ladies. Do you know of any place on the face of the earth where woman has more liberty and where she enjoys such high and glorious privileges as she does here as a Latter-day Saint? No. The very idea of a woman here in a state of slavery is a burlesque on common sense. As women of God, fulfilling high and responsible positions, performing sacred duties, women who stand not as dictators but as counselors to their husbands, and who in the purest, noblest sense of refined womanhood are truly their helpmates. We not only speak because we have the right but justice and humanity demands that we should. Before another month had elapsed, the Utah Territorial Legislature passed a bill giving suffrage to women. Now, a lot of people don't know this. The entire right to vote for the entire country was really tied up in polygamy. A lot of people don't know this, but Mormons have a huge... Uh, had a huge stock in this. Like, we helped get the vote to women. Mormon women were suffragists. You can look up a picture and see Eliza Snow sitting there with Susan B. Anthony. We were a big deal. They wanted to court us. Now, they believed that if the, the United States government believed that if they gave women the right to vote in Utah, that, that the women would vote against polygamy. So it was pushed forward, and Utah gets the suffrage to women before anyone else. Now, of course, when they get the vote, they don't vote the way that the government wants them to vote. And so the vote gets taken away, and then it comes back later when it spreads over the country. But it's really interesting because um, we talk about women not lobbying for rights. This is exactly what Eliza spent a good chunk of her deal doing, lobbying for the rights of women to vote. They were activists. They were suffragists. They were lobbying, lobbying, lobbying. They wanted the freedom to live the way they wanted to. In Utah, among her list of continual accomplishments, she was a president of the Relief Society, the matron and priestess of the Salt Lake Endowment House, and she assisted in organizing the Primary Association. She published two volumes of poems in 1856 and 1876. On one morning, December 5th, 1887, at five minutes past one, Eliza died. She wasn't ill with any special disease, just old age, nearly 84 years old. And she requested that no black be worn at her funeral. And the assembly hall on Temple Square was decked in beautiful white draperies and white flowers, which I think is so lovely. She had written her own epitaph, which says, quote, "'Tis not the tribute of a sigh from sorrow's heaving bosom drawn." nor tears that flow from pity's eye to weep for me when I am gone. No costly balm, no rich perfume, no vain sepulchral rite I claim. No mournful knell, no marble tomb, nor sculptured stone to tell my name. In friendship's memory let me live, for friendship holds a secret cord that with the fibers of my heart entwines so deep, so close, Tis hard for death's dissecting hand to part. I feel the low responses roll like the far echo of the night and whisper softly through my soul, I would not be forgotten quite. So, yes, I, I don't know 
what to say on Eliza because I feel like anything I say is is inadequate as a Mormon woman. She was so influential. Her works have so influenced all of our lives. It has influenced my life personally so much. And yet she was part of these scandals. And she lived the life of a single woman, a single wife, which is really odd. It's, it's an odd concept to think about a single childless wife to two influential men. That's just a really hard thing to talk about. Um, it's complicated. I feel like I can't do a reverence. I feel very conflicted about her narrative. And the only thing that I think that could maybe assuage my guilt in talking about this is encouraging you to to read about her, to study her, to read her poetry, to read her journals, to read her biography. The, the newest one that just came out is a great thing. Listen to the podcast. Do your research on it. Um, because Eliza is a constant reminder to me that these women are more than just wives. They, they were people. They were influential people that shaped not only a church, but a culture and a nation. And Eliza was one of those. So anyway, um, I will get off my preaching pulpit and let you get back to what you're doing, but I hope you're enjoying this series. If you are, consider making a donation. Um, our donations are going to some exciting projects that Whitefields is um, doing. And so, and they go directly to the podcast and supporting me and, and my efforts. So my uh, husband and children think that my time reading all these Mormon history books is worth it. So anyway, uh, go ahead and leave your comments in the comment section at feministbornhousewivespodcast.org. And I thank my reader for doing this. And thanks for joining us at feministbornhousewivespodcast.org.